We are putting a bookmark in our series in Acts, and this morning we will have God's Word open us up to Revelations chapter 2. Revelations chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 7. And when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word. Revelations, the second chapter, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Great. Uh, there's a, uh, a book entitled To the Golden Shore, and uh, it's a biography on the life of America's first foreign missionary, Adoniram Judson. Now, Adoniram Judson uh, was a missionary first to India, but later he discovered this small country uh, called Burma, to which he gave his life to. He spent about 40 years ministering in Myanmar. In fact, the Bible Uh, that most Burmese people use today uh, was translated by this man back in the 1800s. Now, the book tells the story of how Judson... Oh, I actually have a cover of the book. There you go. (laughs) It's an older book. Uh, But the book tells the story of how Judson met and courted his wife early on. Uh, Judson uh, fell in love with Nancy Hasselton the moment he met her. And within one month, he wrote to her, asking her to marry him and to go overseas to reach the nations with the gospel. Now, Nancy, upon receiving uh, this um, proposal, wasn't quite sure. She didn't know how to respond, and so she delayed the answer. And when she finally spoke to him, uh, she, she evaded him, said she needed to get her parents' approval. And so Judson, without wasting any time, he puts pen to paper, and he writes to her father, John Hasselton. And this is what he writes to her. This is from 1810, letter from Judson to Nancy's father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure 
to her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Now, if you are um, single and if you are male, take note, uh, this is not how you do it. Uh, Ad- Adon Iron Judson, introducing himself to uh, his future father-in-law, writes this letter saying, will you consent to give her to me in hand, in, in hand of marriage and will you consent to seeing her no more? Now, John Hasselton, uh, when he receives this letter, he doesn't go searching for Judson in the middle of the night with a baseball bat. <laughs> Instead, he shows this letter to Nancy and he tells her, read this, you decide. Do what you want to do. If you want to marry this man and go overseas, you can. And so, Nancy, upon hearing and seeing this letter, recognizing Judson's boldness, yet tenderness, the author writes that Nancy found him to be irresistibly appealing. She says yes. It was his letter to her father that won Nancy over. That letter was in some way his love letter to Nancy, and that captured her heart. In today's passage, in a very similar way, has the same effect. Revelation 2, 1-7 is a letter from Jesus written to the church in Ephesus. And in this letter, Jesus is expressing his love and his desire for them. However, as this letter is in our Bibles, we can have confidence that this letter is not just for the Ephesians, but this letter is also for us. It's for you and I. Now, while this letter might not have originally been addressed to us as a church, God, he speaks to us by his spirit with the same heart and the same affection through these words. And it's my prayer today as we just go through this letter that we would see Jesus' love for his church, that we would find him to be irresistibly appealing, and that we would once again renew our love for him. Jesus begins the letter by introducing himself. This is what he says in Revelation 2.1, the words of him who walk among the seven golden lampstands. Now, in Revelation, golden lampstands represent the church. And this is made explicit in verse 20 of chapter 1, where Jesus says this, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, how does Jesus begin his letter? He begins his letter by noting his proximity to the church. He begins his letter by 
making sure the church understands his intimacy with the church. He begins the letter by establishing his relationship with the church. Who is he? He is one who walks among us. One of the ways in which uh, the past year can be characterized, the past year, the past 18 months, one of the ways in which this time can be characterized is with the word distant. Uh, Due to COVID, we were forced to distance ourselves from people, from communities, from our neighbors, and from our friends. And with that also came this feeling, this inevitable feeling that God was also distant from us. Whether it was due to the limitations of virtual worship or the lack of fellowship. For many of us, this past 18 months felt as though God was far away. It felt as though God was distant from us. Unrelated to the pandemic, we always get the feeling that God is distant from us whenever we are in sin. When the church and its people are in moments of weakness, when the church and its people are in moments of sin, our natural inclination is to think, God can't be near us. He can't be near me. We are too dirty, and he is too holy. Well, friends, nothing can be further from the truth. Jesus reminds us in today's letter that he walks among us. His presence and proximity to us is not conditional upon anything we do, how well we behave, but it's conditioned upon his own promise. In his great commission at the end of Matthew, Jesus says this, Behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. Jesus promises that he will be near to us, that he will be close to us. Revelation 2, 1 reminds us that he walks among us. Jesus continues, verses 2 to 3, he says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The first words directed to the church from Jesus, uh, the first words are these, I know, I know. He begins by saying, I know, further proving that Jesus isn't distant or absent from us. What does Jesus know? He knows the church's patient endurance. He knows the church's deep commitment to the truth. He even knows that the church is being persecuted for his, his name's sake. Jesus knows. You know, I find great comfort in the fact that Jesus begins by saying, hey, I know. I know your patient endurance. You know, being patient is a very difficult task. I don't know anyone who describes themselves as being patient. Being patient is a difficult task. It becomes especially more difficult when no one knows that you are being patient when no one knows whatever it is you are enduring. But being patient becomes a lot easier. The task becomes less burdensome if someone knows and someone understands. If you are enduring something, right, 
for your spouse to just look over to you and say, you know what? I know. It lightens the load incredibly. You ever stand in line at a retail store and the line is just long? You're waiting there 10, 15 minutes. It doesn't even feel like it's moving. Now, if the people who are working the registers are just working at their normal pace, they don't even bother to look up. They're making small talk with each other and with every customer. They run into issues with the credit card machine, and so they just stop everything, and they're just waiting for a manager to come with that key that spins. If you're sitting there or standing there in line and all this is going on, being patient is extremely difficult. But in that situation, if one employee just looks up, if he or she takes a look at the line, if they make eye contact with you and just acknowledges your patience with these nonverbal cues, waiting becomes a lot easier. If the person looks up and he or she sees the line and says, wow, look at all these people being patient. And when you see, when you realize that you're known, that you're understood, it makes being patient a lot easier. You know, Jesus begins this letter consoling his people. He says, I know, I know, I know what you are doing. I know what you've endured. I know where you are at. I know what is going on. Jesus begins this letter by saying, I know, I know when everyone else is seemingly oblivious. Jesus says, I know. If you look further on, verses 2 to 3, as, he, as, he cont- as, as we've just read, the church in Ephesus is in many ways a model church. They are faithful servants. They are working and toiling for the gospel. They are also committed to doctrinal truth. So the church in Ephesus is not just a church that serves well, but they also preserve the truth well. And on top of that, they are suffering because of it. Yet they are unwavering, unwavering in their commitment to Jesus. You know, it's extremely hard to find a balanced church. Right? Some churches are known to be, you know, a church that is extremely missional. Other churches are known to be a prayerful church. Other churches are known to be, you know, a, a great community church. When I first came to ELMC, I asked, so what makes this church distinct? And I remember one congregant says, you know, ELM church is a church that eats well. We love to eat. I think that's true. And it's hard to find a, you know, a balanced church, a church that's great at preserving truth, that's doctrinally committed, theologically astute, and a church that serves well, a church that prays a church that's committed. Ephesus, or the church there, seems to be extremely well-balanced. They do everything well. They're faithful servants, committed to good works. They're patiently enduring. They're committed to truth. They're weeding out the evil. They're putting to test certain ideas and teachings. And they're coming out clean. The church in Ephesus was deeply committed in work, in the word, and in works. They were doctrinally sharp, patiently diligent, and they have not grown weary. When you had, if you had visited the church at Ephesus, it didn't seem as though the people were dragging their feet. Didn't, you didn't get the sense that they were just coasting. 
There was real fervor and deep commitment in the church. So Jesus begins by consoling the church, saying, I know. He recognizes them. But it doesn't end there. If it ended there, that would be great. After consoling them, Jesus then moves on in verses four, in verse four to correct them. This is what he says. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In other translations, it says you have forgotten or abandoned your first love. Friends, if Jesus was to come and correct our church, what would you expect? What do you think Jesus would say? If he were to give an assessment of our church, what do you think he would say? You think he would say, you know, this church, you guys don't pray enough? You think he'd say, you know, this is a very lazy church? Do you think Jesus would come and say, you know, your patience is like a two-year-old child? You're theologically a mess. If Jesus were to come and correct us, what would you expect? Well, I think we would expect something like this on the outside, right? You know, your church could use more prayer. Your church could use more commitment to the word. Your church could use more sacrifice. That's what we would expect. But Jesus doesn't do that. That's not the correction that he offers up. He doesn't rebuke the fruit, but he goes and he challenges the root. He gets to the heart of the matter, literally. Jesus' biggest criticism, his biggest charge against the church of Ephesus is their hearts, that they have abandoned their first love. He says, yes, you can serve, you can endure, you can give, you can work, you can teach, you can learn, you can discipline, you can do all of these great things, but what's missing? What is missing? Jesus says, it's love. It's love for the head of the church, love for the bridegroom, love for Jesus. You know, I found it interesting that Jesus, he doesn't say, you know what, what you're missing is love. He says, what you're missing is first love. He rebukes, his rebuke is that we lost the love we had at first. I don't know, what comes to mind when you hear the words first love? It's hard to pinpoint exactly what that is, but we know the feeling. What is first love? Well, first love is something that's pure. There's an innocence about a first love. There's a tenderness, an unforgetfulness. There's a nervousness in a very good way. With first love, there's strength. There's this power, a conquering spirit, where you feel as though you can overcome anything. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. While the church at Ephesus was excelling in everything, this is what they were missing. It was a church running on habit. It was a church running on tradition. It was a church running on convention. Maybe it was even pride or fear, but it wasn't out of love. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. You do everything amazing, but you're missing your first love. You know what's further interesting about first loves? 
Our first loves, if you think about it, are always located where? It's located in the past. When you say first love, it's always a distant memory. It's nostalgic. It's something to reminisce about, not something to revel in in the present. But this is what bothers Jesus so much as he writes to the church. What bothers Jesus so much is that our first love for him is something located in the past. And Jesus wants to rekindle this. Church, can I just simply ask you a question? When did you love Jesus the most? When did you think of him the most? When did you spend the most time with him? When were you most giddy and nervous in a good way about worshiping him? When were you the most pure and innocent before his word? When was it that you desired him the most, that you served him with joy and trust? I'd say nine out of ten times our answer to these questions is always uh, sometime in the past. Whether it's youth group or college or when I was a young adult, when I was at a small church, when I was at a big church, our answer to these questions, when did you love Jesus the most? is usually located sometime in the past. And Jesus, this morning, is correcting us. He's rebuking us. He's calling this to our attention. That for the church, if our love for Jesus, if our first love for him is at some point in the past and not the present, there's something wrong with the relationship. You know, if you're married... Right? Just look over and ask your spouse. Ask her later today. Ask him in the afternoon. Honey, when did you love me the most? If your spouse answers, I think it was about 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, I think 20 years ago, that was the peak of our relationship. Six months ago. All of these answers are wrong. What's the correct answer? Now, I love you the most now. <laughs> we know who's getting some love. <laughs> I love you the most now. My first love is in the present, not in the past. You know, many years ago, an elderly couple shared with me their secret to a long and happy marriage. I think I was uh, newlywed at that time, and they, they sat me down and they said, you know what, you want to know the secret sauce to a long and successful marriage? They said, it's not love. Instead, they used this Korean word. They said it's chong. Now, chong translates roughly into uh, enduring attachment. So basically, they were saying the secret to a successful and happy marriage, to a long marriage, is endearing attachment. It's being attached in a very endearing or loyal way to one another. Now, I don't know how true this is, but I do know that our Savior doesn't desire endearing attachment. Our Savior desires love a first love. I mean, just notice the metaphor that Scripture uses to describe Christ's relationship to the church. Right? 
Jesus, the scripture doesn't say, you know, that Jesus and the church were like an elderly couple. He doesn't say Jesus and the church are lifelong friends. It doesn't say Jesus and the church are enduring partners. No, it says what? Jesus and the church are what? A groom and a bride, newlyweds. This metaphor of a groom and a bride reinforces the belief that what Jesus desires from us is first love. A love that's pure. A love that's innocent. A love that in a good way is naive. A love in a way that trusts and is filled with joy. A a love that is nervous. You know, I know that maybe as a church, as Christians, you know, people who've been committed to the church, people who've been confessing Christians for decades, some of you might be thinking, you know what, this is unreasonable, this is uh, demanding, uh, this is unrealistic. I mean, come on, Jesus. Come on. We're a good church. I mean, we work hard, we serve diligently, we're patient, we're committed to the truth. What more do you want? Well, Revelation 2 reminds us that he wants our hearts. Friends, this passage is an amazing reminder that Jesus died for us, not because he needed us. Jesus died for us, not because he found us to be useful. Jesus died for us not because he needed people to serve him or to safeguard the truth or to suffer for him. Jesus died for us not so that we can be useful to him. He spilt his blood for us not so that we would serve him. But he died for us because he loved us. You know, if you find this to be demanding unreasonable, unrealistic, saying, you know what, come on, we're doing all of this. How can you ask or criticize that we don't have our first love? If you find that to be the case, we have to be reminded of how much he deeply desires and longs for us. He died for us. Because he desired us. He loved us. Now what do you think he expects in return? What do you think he wants from his church in return? His bride to be a faithful servant? His bride to serve him in all of these ways? No, he desires that his bride would love him. Just as he loves us. So what does that mean? Does it mean that we have to work more? Does it mean that we need more service, more endurance? No, Ephesians, he's he's speaking to the church at Ephesus saying, no, I want your heart. Now, Now, I want to be clear. You know, all of these things that Jesus mentions here, toil, works, patient endurance, testing the truth, being committed to orthodoxy, All of these things are great, and they are outward signs of love. They can be the fruits of love. But 
all of these things can also be done out of habit, out of chore, out of responsibility, out of fear, out of pride. And Jesus wants to clearly diagnose our hearts. Why is it that you do these things? You know, a good way to see where our hearts really lie is a good way to categorize, yeah, where do we fall under? Is by asking ourselves this question. The things that we do, the works that we do, are they they motivated by love? And you'll know whether or not that's the case if you don't demand anything in return. If the works that we do, there are no strings attached. But works that are motivated by fear and pride, they always seek something in return. Whether it's validation, approval, recognition. As Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus, he's saying, listen, he's not saying, hey, stop doing all of these things. Because he says, yes, keep these works, continue on these works. But he's saying, rekindle, reignite your first love. As you do these things, what's the motivation behind them? Is it out of fear? Is it out of pride? Is it out of habit, responsibility? Or is it really out of love? You know, uh, a a pastor that I studied with in seminary uh, once shared this illustration. He said this, you know, you can get uh, an infinite number of zeros and keep adding them. And if you keep adding zeros, it's a really long number, but it's still the same number. He says that's what works are like. You just keep adding zeros, right? But if you add a one to the front of it, what does that do? That radically transforms what that number, that number's value. Love is that one. You see, we can keep adding zeros to what we do, but unless we have love, All of that is worthless. Now, again, we can walk away, as I think many times, as as we often do, we can walk away from this sermon and say, you know what, that's great. All right, you know what, I'm going to try to love Jesus more and not really take this seriously. Right? I mean, I don't know if your spouse ever sat you down and said, you know what, honey, I feel as though you don't love me. How do you respond to that, right? That's a difficult thing. But Jesus is being quite serious here. If you look in the next verse, he says this. Therefore, um, remember where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, he says what? If not, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, what is a lampstand? What does a lampstand signify? We saw, right, in Revelation 1.20, it signifies a church. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says, I will remove the church from the church? What is he saying? I will remove the lampstand from among you. What is Jesus ultimately saying? He's saying this, if you do not rekindle your first love, if there is no love for me in your hearts as a church, then you will no longer exist to be a church. A church without love is existentially no longer a church. That is the warning. I will remove the lampstand from your place. He's saying you will no longer be a church. 
you know, I think the church at Ephesus, if you look at its history, it's probably the church with, uh, that had the best pastors ever, ever. Um, Paul planted this church. And of all the churches that he planted and ministered at, he stayed at Ephesus the longest. He stayed in Ephesus for three whole years. So the church started off with Paul. And then who was its next pastor? It was Timothy. He sends Timothy. And Timothy ministers there for decades. And then we know at the end, uh, around AD you know, 90 to 100, the apostle John goes to Ephesus. And he's ministering in that church. I mean, think of the heritage of pastors, preachers, of leaders at that church. You have Paul, Timothy, and John. You know, the interesting thing, though, is history shows that after 400 years, this wonderful church, this amazing church with an amazing heritage of preachers, this church actually ceased to exist. There's no trace of the church at Ephesus. And about after the mid-400 AD, this church actually disappears. Uh, It is a serious warning. It's a serious warning that a church without love for its Savior is no longer a church. Why? Because a church without love for its Savior is a church that doesn't understand how much its Savior loves them. Friends, this morning, I want to simply remind the congregation here of how much God loves you, of how much He desires you, how much He longs to be with you. The promise is this, if you repent, if you turn, right? It's not like, hey, if you, you know, do X, Y, and Z, but it's simply if you repent, if you repent, Not repent to earn his love, but if you repent, meaning if you receive his love, if you dwell in his love, what will he do? The promise is this, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Verse 7. He promises to the church that intimacy that Adam had with God in the garden, where God was walking among them, where he fellowshiped with them closely and intimately. And he promises if you turn if you receive and dwell in my love, this is the fellowship that we can have. This is the relationship that we can have. So I think there are two responses that we could have this morning. We can find, number one, God to be, again, unreasonable. God, if you're telling me to rekindle my first love for you, I can't do that. God, I come to church, I do this, I do that, and isn't this enough? We can find it to be unreasonable. Or the second response, we can find God and find his ultimate desire to be near to us, his people, and be so moved by that, that that motivates us, that that changes us, that that transforms us. God loves you. He loves you jealously. He loves you in an envious way. He loves you in a way where he wants your first love. Will you respond this morning? Would you join me in prayer at this time?